Welcome to Real Impeachment with Ross Garber. I am Ross Garber. Our goal is to cut through the partisan jabbering and talk about the stuff that really matters in trying to sort out what is going on with the Trump impeachment process. I'm an impeachment lawyer who has represented four U.S. governors in impeachment proceedings, and I also teach a class on political investigations and impeachments at Tulane Law School. But you won't be hearing just what I have to say. We're going to be bringing you with interviews from others in the worlds of law and media and government who can provide insight on what's going on. We're going to try to avoid those who have an agenda. You have plenty of opportunity to hear from them. We're going to focus instead on people who can help us put things in perspective. To that end, my guest today has a very rare perspective. Alan Barron is also an impeachment lawyer, perhaps the only other one I've ever met in the wild. He has represented the House of Representatives in four impeachments of federal judges, three of whom went to trial in the Senate, where Allen continued his representation of the House. Now, to give you some perspective, only 19 federal officers have ever been impeached in the history of our country. Allen handled three of these cases, his fourth one resigned before trial. Now, one of the things Allen and I talked about was his work with a man named Adam Schiff years ago. Now, if you're listening to this podcast, you probably know that Adam Schiff is now the chairman of the House Select Committee on Intelligence who is leading the impeachment investigation of President Trump. Oh, you thought Adam Schiff was just learning about impeachment as he goes. Not so much. This is not Adam Schiff's first impeachment rodeo, but I get him ahead of myself. I'll let Alan Barron tell you all about that and much more. So, Alan, thank you for joining us. Um, my pleasure. I guess my first question is, how does somebody become an impeachment lawyer? This was around 89, and a guy named Steve Ross was the uh, lead lawyer for the House, and he was also counsel to the Democratic majority in the House. Steve called me up, and he says, uh, look, uh, the House is going to impeach a federal judge. Would you like to take that on? And I said, great. So that was my my first encounter with um, judicial impeachment, and this was the impeachment of Alcee Hastings, who is today a congressman. And it was a phenomenal case, to really. First of all, Hastings had been charged criminally with a co-defendant. They got separate trials. His co-defendant was convicted, but Hastings was acquitted by a jury down in Florida. Nevertheless, his judicial brethren decided he had done what he was charged with criminally, and they initiated an investigation into his conduct. Ultimately, um, they hired John Doerr. John came out with a report. So then I was faced with uh, two things. I have a jury verdict saying not guilty, and I have Doerr's uh, investigation saying there was clear and convincing evidence that in fact Hastings had committed the offense. So I started from scratch. I said, okay, well, we got to figure out what happened here and I launched and put a team together, launched an investigation, spent a lot of time on it, and eventually concluded that Hastings had in fact not only done what he had been tried criminally, but we found other stuff that we uh, also included in the articles of impeachment, and we made some law in the field of um, impeachment that had never necessarily been addressed previously. Like what? Well, for example, what is the burden of proof? Is it beyond a reasonable doubt, which is the criminal standard? Is it 
uh, preponderance of the evidence, which is civil. Are you talking about the, at the House level or the Senate level? At the Senate level. Okay. So at the Senate level, when you say you made law, so what, what is the burden of proof at the Senate? Well, it was very interesting. Uh, the third option was uh, clear and convincing evidence was the third, third possibility. And he, of course, was arguing for beyond a reasonable doubt, the highest standard. The Senate took a pass, and, and they were right. They concluded it is, it is, there is no flat rule. It is up to each senator to make up his and her mind as to what standard they wish to apply, which is very interesting. So that's the way that was handled. He also wanted to argue that the rules of evidence that apply in the courtroom uh, also should apply at an impeachment hearing. Uh, The Senate ruled, uh, well, sure, but... We're not necessarily going to follow it if we think it's getting in the way of what we want to look at. So if you, we want to hear some hearsay, we're going to hear. So sort of around, but not to be followed absolutely the way you would in a court. So in other words, the the, the rules of evidence would be guidance, but could be overridden by the Senate. Did he take uh, you to court on any of those issues? He, he had, yes. He, a lot of he fought us on was discovery. We wanted to get grand jury stuff from the earlier pre- criminal proceedings, and we actually... There have been a recent ruling uh, with regard to the investigation of President Trump, and some of the cases that we prevailed on actually were cited by the judge, in her opinion, awarding uh, access to these materials uh, to the House. Because in in, in that case, did the court decide that the that that the Senate trial was a judicial proceeding, and so the 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 uh, the exemption to the federal rules of criminal procedure and uh, requiring the the secrecy of the grand jury applies. Is that what happened? That's exactly right. Um, I remember Judge Butzner of the Fourth Circuit was specially assigned to be the judge who would handle these things initially, and who's a very fine judge, and. Um, he required that we made some showing of need, but, you know, he wasn't just going to hand it to us, but he recognized that we had a legitimate need for this uh, material and we prevailed. For the Hastings uh, process in the House, you show up, they let you hire a staff, you get paid, the staff gets paid. And who are you working for? Are you working for the House as a whole or are you working for the Judiciary Committee? How's it work? Initially, it's the Judiciary Committee. I mean, that's where the thing is lodged at that point. And the investigation is conducted under the auspices of uh, that committee. And I'm sort of reporting back to uh, Chairman Rodino. Um, But there also was a subset of um, uh, members of the Judiciary Committee that I work with most directly, in particular, John Conyers. And that's a very interesting issue. Hastings, of course, is African-American. John Conyers is African-American. And he um, initially was very, very leery of this entire proceeding. He thought that this uh, was unfair, that it, that Hastings was being singled out because he was African-American. And he was really in a spot. And he was heading up the team of managers who were going to deal with the case. Eventually, he changed his mind and... I will never forget, I was sitting next to him on the floor of the house when he got up to speak uh, with regard to the articles of impeachment. Conyers stood up in his place at the, uh, on the floor of the house, and the house was very quiet because they knew what a moment this was for him to speak on this issue. He says, we did not wage the civil rights struggle 
merely to, to replace one form of judicial corruption for another. The principle of equality requires that a black public official be held to the same standard that other public officials, officials are held to. A lower standard would be patronizing, a higher standard, racist. Just as race should never disqualify a person from office, race should never insulate a person from the consequences of wrongful conduct. Well, when he finished that, House was hushed, and all of a sudden, the entire House rose to its feet and began applauding. It was an electrifying moment. Can you picture something like that? something like that happening today. Well, we saw a little version of it when the um, committee that was listening to the testimony of the ambassador, yeah, and they did stand up and applaud. But this was the whole house and the gallery. I mean, it was stunning. Yeah, well, and, and now let's get to Rule 11 because, you know, as, as we know, the Constitution provides that the Senate has the sole power to try impeachments. Did the whole Senate sit there and listen to all the evidence? How did it work? Well, in the 1930s, there was an impeachment trial of a judge. And the senators showed up to get a quorum, and then they virtually all left. I mean, and the few who stayed were reading the mail, and I mean, it was not working. So in order to really have a much better procedure, they adopted Rule 11, which requires that... There, there would be a panel of 12 senators, six Republicans and six Democrats. The chairman would be of the party that then controlled the Senate, and the vice chairman would be the other party. And um, they would take the evidence. They would All the evidence would be presented to them. They would then write up a report which didn't reach conclusions about guilt or innocence, but it would, in effect, report back to the full Senate— uh, what had been presented to this panel. And then they would meet behind closed doors and for hours uh, and uh, then come out in the in this well of the Senate itself. And one of the rare times you'll see 100 senators in one place uh, and vote. Guilty or not guilty. So the House managers are the ones who are technically the prosecutors in the case. Uh, you acted as sort of counsel to the House still. How did you split up? What was the what did the House managers do versus what did you do? Well, I cross-examined Elsie Hastings. Let's start with that. The heavy lifting done by professionals. Um, these guys are all, I think they were all male, are, are all lawyers. They have law degrees, but they've not been practicing. So we would work with them. I and my staff would work with them. They all wanted to participate in some way. So we would, you know, give them questions they could ask that were not going to be very controversial, but they would get into the thing. There was one in particular, I'll just tell you about it. I'm gonna, not going to name a name. He was a lovely guy, a congressman from Pennsylvania who wanted very he was one of the managers and he wanted very much to participate but he had he wouldn't stick to the to the script I mean he would go off on his own and we were just terrified what was going to happen so we put together the script for him we went over it with him we begged him please you know these are the questions this is what the witness expects you're going to ask him and he oh say oh thanks fellas I'm all set and he would get up and within 30 seconds he was off on his own and the poor witness is sitting there asking for help what do I do now but you know we got through it and uh, the key was that the heavy lifting had to be done by people who were trial lawyers so, so, so you're back, you're doing your stuff, 
And then the phone rings again. I don't remember whether the, the call came to me or I picked up the phone and called. I suspect it was the latter. And uh, when I knew that they were investigating uh, Porteous. And, and this is a federal judge in Louisiana. Federal judge in Louisiana. It's a very interesting case. He was originally a state court judge which get they, who get paid very little money, apparently, in Louisiana. And Porteous was a guy who um, he enjoyed... You know, let the good times roll. I mean, this is, after all, New Orleans. Uh, he um, he liked to gamble. He enjoyed a drink once in a while. Uh, and um, he was kind of a good old boy. Not a dummy. He was a smart guy. He was good, apparently been a good lawyer. But he couldn't live within his means as a state court judge, so he would go back to his old law firm, and for a while, he would just drop by and ask them for money, which they would do for a while, but eventually they got unhappy with that, as you might imagine. So he had, they, they had these um, cases, they were called, I think, conservatorships. All they involved was filling out a couple of pieces of paper and turning them into the court, and you got 300 bucks. So he had control over that. And so he started sending them to his law firm. They would fill them out. They would get the 300 bucks. He would come by and he would get an envelope full of cash. The estimated take over years was that he got about $20,000. Yeah, it's not the, you know, it's not the, the, the Brinks, Brinks robbery here, but it's wrong and it's corrupt. The other thing was um, bail bondsmen. Um, the bail bondsman would go in and talk to the person who's in jail. They wanted the bail set as high as it could be, but that the person could still make bail. There's no point if they can't make bail, nobody gets anything. So they would find out what that number is. They would go to Porteous, tell him what it is, and he would set the bail at that. Okay, so it, was, it, it ought to be set at the lowest amount that you could rely that they'd show up. And here, they were, in effect, they were setting it the highest amount to benefit the bail bondsman. And in return for that, <laughs> he would get ice chests full of shrimp. <laughs> this is not it's exactly, New Orleans, right? That's what I mean. It's not exactly the Brinks robbery here. And bottles of liquor and, uh, you know, bourbon. And they would fix his car. Apparently his car was kind of a jalopy. Um, but they would, you know, pick it up and get it fixed when it needed it. But then he becomes a federal judge. None of this apparently came out in his background investigation by the Bureau. So he's now a federal judge. He's making more money. He's got a lifetime appointment, but he could not live within his means. And eventually he goes bankrupt. And in his bankruptcy proceeding, he puts a false name on his application because he didn't want the papers to pick it up. Impeachment traditionally has been about addressing the misconduct and the role that you're in. Right. Correct. Now there is this precedent. Uh, there, there's a precedent set by this case for the ability to bring impeachment charges based on conduct before the official took office. It's interesting. Yeah, at, at least where that conduct wasn't known to the public or the reviewing authorities. If it were known and the person was appointed or voted in either way then there's a with a doctrine of estoppel i mean you're precluded from raising something that you knew about and wasn't a problem then it's not a problem now tell me a little bit more about this 
this congressman that you're working with, who is the the manager, one of the managers, Adam Schiff. He's terrific. He's not. He he. First of all, he's very smart. Number two, he's very diligent. Um, he works hard when he's got when he takes on something, and he's very nice to work with. Um, and uh, he gives you a lot of leeway. And he's a little bit, I guess you got to say he's a little, I don't know if this is true or not, but at least in this instance, he's a little bit of a risk taker because he could have said, uh, Alan, you know, you're pushing the boundaries here. We've got three articles of impeachment against this guy. Let's not go where we don't have to go. Well, he didn't say that. And interestingly, in the Senate, when this article came up for a vote, the vote was 90 to 6. I mean, it wasn't debated. It wasn't It wasn't even close. Was Adam Schiff in, you know, very involved in the process at all, or did he just sort of let you do whatever you wanted to do? He was absolutely involved along the way. I mean, I, he, you know, he's a congressman. He's got his own stuff he's got to do. But whenever we needed him and whenever we didn't go off on our own um, without letting him know what we were doing and what we had found, I mean, he was intimately involved but we were doing a lot of the legwork i mean that's the way it works and was he there for he, he was a manager for the trial too absolutely and he was very active you know as i was saying earlier in some of these trials the managers the, the congressmen want to be managers it gives them a little exposure and it's kind of new and interesting uh but they don't do very much on their own adam was I mean, he is a real trial lawyer. I mean, he was he was out there litigating uh, and arguing uh, with the best of them. What was the distinction or, or similarities between practicing in court and practicing before the Congress, especially the Senate? There are superficial resemblances. I mean, each side gets a chance to present its evidence, and yet the rules of evidence don't necessarily apply. Uh, each side is trying to establish and meet the burden of proof that it may have or the defense it may have, and yet there's nothing uh, codified or recognized as necessarily applying to the proceedings, so it's it's looser in that way. And yet, you know, there's a reason why those rules exist, because it gives shape to the proceeding, and the shape of the proceeding is largely um, equivalent or at least roughly equivalent to what would go on in a courtroom. Each side gets a chance to present. Each side gets to cross-examine. Um, so it has the indicia of a court trial, but at its core, it's different. Yeah, and, and, and the senators get to ask questions, right? Absolutely. Now, in the Rule 11 panels, um, they would go one at one by one. They would get to each get a chance to ask questions. In the Senate, it's a little more complex. Um, they... As I understand it, now each each time they get their own rules. I mean, if you look at the process of the Clinton impeachment, you want to call that a trial? Not any trial I ever heard of. That was bizarre. No witnesses. Whoever heard of a trial with no witnesses? Because the Senate gets to come up with pretty much whatever rules they want to come up with. There, there are those basic rules that we that we talked about. There are a lot of gaps. Right, but then they can they can change them, and. Uh, and the Supreme Court has said, barring something that would be so bizarre that we would have to intervene, it's up to the Senate to set the rules the way they want them. No, it, it, and 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 also very different from the proceedings that that you handled, right? Absolutely. And, and it sounds like the the cases you handled weren't that political in terms of partisan political, or were they? The answer is no. For three of the four. The Hastings was not partisan political, but it was racially charged. 
I mean, we had Al Sharpton show up. We had uh, a representative of Elijah Muhammad show up. I mean, this was very, you know, after all, to the African-American community, here's an African-American judge who's being, who, who was acquitted, who's being ta losing his lifetime job. And they thought that this was outrageous and racial and... Um, they were really upset. So, yeah, I mean, that, was, uh, that wasn't that was smooth. Yeah, and in fact, that raises uh, a, a question. So, you know, in court, we lawyers uh, have rules that usually apply to us in terms of our ability to, to comment out of court on on the proceedings in in these impeachment cases do you recall whether you or the house managers or the senators had any restrictions on what you could say outside of court to the press i don't re recall anything official i do know that my team knew certainly my the lawyers i was working with who i brought in knew not to say anything to anybody um but you, I can't tell a congressman he can't hold a press conference <laughs> or a senator. They're going to do what they want to do, and that's what's going to happen. Uh, I don't recall any kind of, uh, you know, there's nobody there to impose a gag order. Uh, so um, they're going to do what they want to do. Yeah, so I, I appreciate you sort of walking through it just because it really is. It's an unusual, it's an unusual practice. I'd be interested in getting your thoughts on, on the current proceedings, your former, I guess, boss— Adam Schiff is now uh, heading up the committee that's investigating the president. Curiously, it's not the Judiciary Committee. It's the House Intel Committee that Schiff chairs. Any thoughts about how that process is going? We've, we've just finished up our first week of, of testimony. I thought that so far it's being done very carefully, and it's like, it's like a mosaic. I mean, they're building, I hate to use it, it's a cliche, but they're building with pieces. You know, the first three witnesses were all, first of all, you couldn't lay a glove on them. I mean, they were impeccable. And uh, they set that first level of um, evidence that I think on which they will build additional uh, facts. And uh, I think that Schiff is being very careful not to get ahead of himself and to be very carefully building this edifice that will support articles of impeachment. I think they had a, you know, they had a choice. They could have gone back to the Mueller report. I mean, there are pieces in there which could very well sustain an, an article, but I don't think they're going that way. And I think they're going to be focused just on a very n relatively narrow um, trajectory arising out of this business in Ukraine. I think that's the way to go for a lot of reasons. It's easier to understand. It doesn't take a long time to present it. And they have a limited time frame here before the election season is in full swing. And it can be awful tough to be doing impeachment and getting people to pay attention to it while people are running around electioneering. But that's one of the challenges that it sounds like you didn't face that that you know, they're looking at right now, which is a limited time frame. It seemed like you had the time to do a thorough investigation to make sure you had all the evidence, all the information you needed before you, you tried the case in the Senate. If you were if you were involved in this process, how, how concerned would you be about not being able to sort of run everything down at, before a vote were taken on impeachment and, and, and a trial held. There, there's going to be a lot that, you know, given the short time frame, the the investigators just simply can't find out, right? I don't fault proceeding in this manner. 
there are two ways to try cases. One of the best cases I ever tried, the night before we went to trial, I threw out about 90% of what I was planning to put on. It's one of the best cases I ever tried. Uh, the judge came down afterward. I played it, tried it with Plato Kacharis. Plato had one client, I had another. And we tried the case, we won it. The evidence was a deadlock on our client. <laughs> they, were, they were caught. And yet we had this very narrow little window ledge to go out on and we did. And we tried the case, we threw out 90% of what we were gonna put on. We tried it lean and mean, and we jury was out an hour and a half, and I think that was to have lunch. Uh, and the judge came down afterward laughing and said, you bastard stole that case. <laughs> but he's, he's, he admired the way we had decided to try it. So, you know, a big baggy case that goes all over the place and, you know, you throw in everything but the kitchen sink. I mean, sometimes that's a good way to go. It depends on the case. But it's not a bad thing in the right circumstances to have a lean, focused, mean, lean and mean focused case. People understand that better and can track it better. And a lot of times that's the best way to go. I mean, any sense so far of the president's defenses or the issues that that he's raised in defense? So far, it seems to be what's called confession and avoidance. And that may be the only thing he's got. And that is, yeah, sure I did it. That's the confession. It doesn't matter. That's the avoidance. Even though they've still hidden that transcript that supposedly, you know, we're getting a bastardized version of the, what the conversation was. There is a transcript, although there's a lot more than just that. But be nice to see that. But the essence of it appears even in the more truncated version of that call. And um, certain can't, can't say it didn't happen. So I think the, the, the thing is going to be a so what defense. Even given the compressed time frame, we still have, you know, quite a while to go before any potential trial. And, and it'll be interesting to see, you know, who's who's representing uh, the president at trial. You know, he's <laughs> clearly it's going to be Rudy Giuliani. I, I think I think maybe it's not going to be Rudy, you know, and on the private side, it'll be interesting. Even on the, the White House side, you know, Pat Cipollone, you know, perhaps <laughs> he'll do it, although issues have been raised involving, you know, his uh, lawyers in his office. So it'll it'll be interesting to see how it all plays out. Trump is his own lawyer. You could get Supreme Court judges representing him. He's still going to overrule them and be his own lawyer. It's He, he will be a nightmare client. I mean, no question. And I'm not being critical of him. It's just a fact. Uh, you won't be able to control him. He's going to do what he wants to do. Even if it's from a legal trial point of view, it's the worst thing he could do. He's going to do it. So anybody who takes that on better go in with their eyes wide open. Well, you've been very generous with your time. Any sort of parting thoughts. I testified before a committee that was looking into should impeachment be changed. And they had a committee of lawyers and judges and academics. And, you know, they asked me since I'd been through it several times, what do you think? And I said, you know, it's a cumbersome process. It's antiquated in some respects, but you don't want an easy process. You know, we don't have the form of government where you, as you do in England, where you well, you, you lose a vote of confidence and you're out, and now we got a new prime minister. It should be hard to um, remove a president. You're asking, even the situation we have now is 100 senators can overrule tens of millions of voters who voted the person in. It should be difficult. It is cumbersome, but I think it works. And I, I would not want to see it change in any radical way. Alan, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Real Impeachment with Ross Garber. I hope you enjoyed it. I hope you'll join us for the next episode. If you did like the episode, please leave us a review. And you can always reach me at Ross Garber on Twitter. Thanks and see you next time.